This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals podcast hosted on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Carrie Quinn. Carrie, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so excited to be here with you. As am I. So, yeah, thanks. The way I start the show uh, before we jump into our conversation is I always like to read my guest bios for the audience, anyone who might not be familiar with your work. Uh, so, that said, Carrie Quinn yogi, writer, and reluctant philosopher, describes herself as having both a black belt and a gold medal in codependency. Now firmly in her recovery, she shares her forthcoming book, Not About Me, a memoir, I absolutely love that title, uh, which recounts her personal journey into and out of a relationship with an active sex addict. Combining her backgrounds in yogic philosophy and medical anthropology, Carrie offers her personal perspective into better understanding the nuances of healthy relationship. You can learn more about Carrie and her offerings at www.carriequinn, spelled K-A-R-I-K-W-I-N-N, as in Nancy, dot com. Or if you're checking this out on the Be Here Now Network, simply scroll down a little bit and you will see her website linked right there. And now that we've gotten those formalities out of the way, Carrie, again, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. I love <laughs> love the way that you read my bio. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I, I love, I, I just had another guest uh, I did a show with um, named Jessica Leahy a couple of days ago, and she is really lovely. And, and she said similar. She's like, it's so funny to hear my bio read back to me. And I totally relate when I do, um, you know, speaking engagements or interviews and people read my bio it's always like huh wow I actually have accomplished a couple of things but then at the same time I'm like I'm just this nerd who likes weird stuff and whatever (laughs) but um yeah maybe maybe a bit of my own self-worth stuff there but anyways um so yeah so for the audience in in full transparency uh Carrie and I were talking just for a brief moment before we hit record but um this is our first time connecting I don't know Carrie uh from any of my personal travels I learned of her and her work through the recent Recovery 2.0 conference hosted by the wonderful Tommy Rosen, who I've had on this show a few times now. And I did not get a chance to hear Carrie's interview or actually any of the interviews, which really bummed me out because he had an astonishing lineup, as he always does. But I was traveling during that time. However, I was 
checking out the message board in the comments for the Recovery 2.0 page. And I always like to engage with people who had the opportunity to check out my own interview and read what people are saying about other people's interviews. And I was just absolutely blown away by the feedback, Carrie, that you are getting from your interview. And it, uh, like I said, I'm bummed that I have not had a chance to see it. Um, I certainly, it's on my to-do list, which is an ever-growing list. I'm sure it's something you can relate to. But that said, the, the gist, Carrie, of what I gathered from all of this wonderful feedback from the Recovery 2.0 community and then my own research looking at your website is, and uh, of course, uh, as read in your bio, your forthcoming book, talking about your personal journey um, into and out of relationship with an active sex addict. So it seems like you know that's the umbrella upon which a lot of your work is done, aside from the yogic offerings as well. But so all that said, we have so many different directions we can take this conversation. I guess maybe just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about your own background? What led you into yoga? What led you into your spiritual uh, pursuits and exploration? And essentially what led you to what you're doing today? Wow. Yes. Thank you. I (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. Yeah, I I was very honored to be uh, interviewed by Tommy, and uh, I was equally surprised by the feedback that I received. Um, it was fascinating to to hear that come back. Um, and so when I think about okay, what got me into yoga, I unfortunately don't have this incredible moment of bliss that fell over <laughs> me like so many people will say I you know I resisted it and then I came to yoga I grew up with yoga I when I was um in pre-kindergarten hmm. my pre-kindergarten teacher taught us yogic practices I remember this is way back in the way back before there were mats and pants and studios uh you know we were doing yoga in the grass Mm. And we were doing the sort of asana stuff and we were learning a little bit about philosophy and teachings from the Bhagavad Gita. And like anyone, I kind of felt like my childhood was very normal because it was my experience. And what I've learned since or what I learned as I grew up was that that was a very unusual exposure to yoga from such a young age. Right. And that it didn't come from my parents, um, that it was very localized. And so... I grew up with with yoga and that was always a part of who I was and when I got to junior high and it was a you know culture shock and just sort of the normal horrifying nature of adolescent oh, America, yeah. <laughs> um, I I uh, I would I started just reading every book all three books that were at the library about yoga mm. and watching like 6 a.m. PBS you know different yoga programs sure yeah doing all of that stuff and then when I got to high school I started teaching yoga um, which may actually be a great example of my um, predisposition for codependency but my PE teacher was supposed to teach dance and she got injured and couldn't teach dance but didn't want to hire a sub Mm. and so she asked me if I would be willing to teach the dance class so she could still get paid and not hire a sub, but she wouldn't have to do the physical stuff that she couldn't do. Okay. And so I made a deal with her. So not only was I sort of codependent, but I engaged in some bargaining. And I said I would teach dance twice a week if I could teach yoga once a week. 
And so that was the beginning of my teaching of yoga. And I will say it, it, um, I didn't realize how distinct my background was from sort of what other people are experiencing when they come to the yogic practice. Because now when I teach teachers or they ask me questions, you know, the origin story that other people have with their experience of yoga or their transformation into spirituality is usually this big landmark experience. And, and I haven't had that. It's been part of my life for as long as I can remember. Well, that's really awesome, though. I, I think that's great. It, you know, when I'm asked a similar question about my background coming to the spiritual path, it's similar in a way that I don't have this really illustrious, you know, fluffy, beautiful uh, experience to share. I was sitting on a couch, I read a book, and it was it was on from that point in my life. It was good to go. Um, but I, the cool thing is I or the cool thing I think for you is that you had that early exposure, which I would love to see more of in this world. I remember speaking with uh, the wonderful teacher, Stephen and Andrea Levine. Uh, Stephen, unfortunately, passed on a, a couple of years ago, but they said something to the effect of, can you imagine what a difference we would have in this country or world if there was a third grade, roughly in third grade, a compassion class taught you know, something mm -hmm. that was part of the curriculum, like English and math or whatever is being taught at third grade. And I really, really love that. And, and uh, you know, that, of course, I believe goes hand in hand with something like yoga or meditation, things of that nature. So that's really lovely that you had that exposure to that. And you're absolutely right. That is not the common uh, thread that you often hear when people talk about coming to the path. It is usually my life was in turmoil or some kind of chaotic event happened or loss or seeking deeper meaning. But that's very cool that it was somewhat ingrained in you from that very early age. So you mentioned codependency, which I know is a big part of, of what you talk about and teach about. So I was wondering if we can shift the conversation in that direction. I, I Codependency is something I feel that I've certainly struggled with. I'm in recovery from drugs and alcohol and all sorts of other behaviors that go along with that and it wasn't until somewhat recently that I really realized I too struggled with codependency issues and even though I thought I didn't upon taking a sincere look in my own um, history and actions with relationships and uh, and other things of that nature I, I recognized wow yeah I do have some codependency stuff going on so I would love for you to talk a bit about that. What specifically from your experience is codependency? And if you want to share at all how it relates to you, what you've experienced in your life or what you see with the people you teach with, really, any way you'd like to take uh, codependency in whatever direction. Sure. I, I think that codependency is at the root of addictive behavior. Mm. I think we sometimes, uh, you know, I... I had this idea at some point that addicts were a kind of people mm. and that I wasn't that kind of person. Um, but as it turns out, I am <laughs> <laughs> that kind of person. We're all that kind of person. Yeah. It isn't a kind of person. I think addiction is part of the vocabulary of the human experience. Yeah. Yeah. That when we're under-resourced, that when we're searching for a solution to a painful experience, that we leverage the tools of addiction, which include the tools of codependency. 
And so my, you know, my joke about codependency is relating to drug addiction. This is, it's a very clear (laughs) example, (laughs) I think, is that my experience of codependency is me flushing your drugs down the toilet and then packing clean needles in your lunch pail just Mm. in case. Wow. Wow, that's poignant. So, so yeah, right? It's like yeah. it's like I see you're doing this thing that is hurting you and I see that you don't have enough power to stop doing that thing. So I'm going to help yeah. by getting rid of this part that I think is the problem that isn't really the problem, yeah. but it's something I can do. And then I'm going to just in case because I know you're probably going to go out and find more drugs and I want you to be safe and you know, it's this convoluted and such a fucked up way of trying to manipulate and control the behavior of someone else. Mm. Yeah. Well, I really, really love that uh, example. It's, it's, it's really very apropos. Um, You know, as you were speaking and you're talking about uh, the addict and you never saw yourself in that light uh, comes to mind a story from Father Thomas Keating, a wonderful Trappist monk, and I've shared it a number of times on this uh, on this program, but I believe it's worth repeating in, in regards to this. And so I was interviewing him, and this is several years ago, maybe back in like 2010, 2011, and I mentioned to him that I was in recovery from substance abuse, and he's a wonderful, wonderful old man. Uh, he's in hospice now. He just went recently, but at this point he was in his... Um, I'd say mid to late 80s and he kind of laughed when I mentioned that I was in recovery and uh, he said well I'm in recovery too and in my mind I'm like oh shit I didn't know Father King had a habit but he went on to say I'm in recovery from um, and this isn't verbatim but something to the effect of from the human experience and the varying degrees to which we all uh, experience suffering and, and yeah. you know, how, how true is that? So it is interesting how we see ourselves in certain lights or don't see ourselves in certain lights, yet we really have so much more in common with um, these certain behaviors or um, patterns with others than many of us recognize. So I, I, I appreciate you sharing that, that that's how you didn't see yourself, but now you, you see how that does have a, or plays a, a role in your life. So going back to the codependency part um when it comes to addiction and let's say um let's just say drugs and alcohol but if if someone's listening and they have a different addiction please replace it with that what is that specific role that codependency plays um in in regards to another human being relationship wise what do you see that like a uh, a sex addiction or relationship addiction i see I see that the codependent side of that, yeah. and it could be a partner. So in my sense, obviously, that's a romantic partnership, right. but it's often a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend. It could be any relationship sure. where my my internal compass is trying to protect the addict, the the small side of the addict, the child, the injured part, the the human lovable portion of the person inside, I see that person and I want to protect that person from the damage that the addictive side of that person is is causing. Mm. So if you're using drugs and alcohol, um, 
you know, we have some stereotypes that aren't even necessarily stereotypes, but very often consequences of using drugs and alcohol are crummy behavior, right? right? Oh, yes. Uh, you become a crummy person. You become angry, um, perhaps violent or sad or something that's unpleasant. And I see what I see as a codependent, what, what someone on the outside sees is this is this child of who the person really is, the innate beautiful aspect of the person who is um, is captured, who is is held hostage by the addiction. And so I think, at least in my experience, sure. yeah. my goal was to protect that person from themselves, which is not possible and in fact makes it worse. So we do these sorts of behaviors that are considered enabling. So right, like in the case of drug addiction or alcohol addiction, a codependent behavior around that might be me calling and making an excuse for why the addict can't be at work. Right. Yeah. You know, they can't go to work because it's my fault. My I didn't take them or my car is broken or they're sick or whatever. And so they don't get the consequences of their behavior. And so I'm protecting them from the consequences of their behavior. And in fact, the consequences are there to teach them about their behavior. Yes, absolutely. And when I protect them, I just, they just suffer more because they have to be more extreme to learn those same lessons, right? This is my understanding of the lesson of karma is the lesson will be repeated until it's learned. Absolutely. 100%. I couldn't agree with that more. And so, you know, as you're talking about codependency, I have two things that are coming up that I want to explore to to go deeper into this. And I'll say them now, and I'm saying them both for myself. I should jot this down while we're talking. But the first is, and, and we'll start here, is let's say someone's listening and they're like, holy shit, I recognize that I have this pattern. And they previously hadn't recognized it and hadn't seen it as codependency. What can they do? to begin to break out of that pattern, you know, because that can, I can imagine be very overwhelming for someone, you know, say they are in that relationship with someone who's addicted and maybe they're addicted, maybe not, but, um, let's say they're not, how do they begin to break that pattern in a skillful way? You know, what's, what's the best way to do that? And then after that, and I'm drawing this down, we're going to talk about the relationship between codependency and enabling or the difference, but one thing at a time, how would you, or what recommendation would you give someone to, to begin to break that pattern of codependency with, um, with someone else in a healthy way? I think there are a couple of ways. Yeah, great. One of the things that I have found to be very helpful in my recovery from codependency is not to identify with it necessarily as part of who I am, but I like to, I call it like my adorable behaviors. Like I do something codependent. I'm like, Oh, how adorable. I just did something codependent. So I'm able to separate myself a little bit from, instead of being like, Oh my gosh, I'm so screwed up. I just did a screwed up thing again. Yeah. Yeah. Instead to say, okay, I just recognized I did something. That's a win that I recognized it. I don't have to identify with it. And then who can I tell about it? Because I think addiction is a disease of isolation. And codependency, if that is an expression of addiction, um, then isolation is 
necessary for its growth and its um, <laughs> its takeover. And so one of the most healing things I think we can do is find appropriate, safe people to share with. So um, that doesn't mean you just run out and post on social media, <laughs> right. hey, here's the thing I just did. Right, right. <laughs> Or that doesn't mean you call someone else who you know is also experiencing some codependent behaviors and you you get into a little cycle of the two of you, but maybe that's going to a 12-step meeting or maybe that's seeing a therapist or a spiritual advisor or counselor or just another independent adult human who is not really close to you. Mm. Um, I think... And this is what I love about my experience of recovery groups, whether those are therapeutic groups or 12-step groups or, or whatever the, the modality is, is that we're able to leverage intimacy without knowing much about each other. Like I can walk into a room and I could know what the codependent thing was that you did. Like last night you were digging in the garbage to find your partner's bottles of alcohol, you know, just to prove to yourself that, that they were drinking again. Um, but I might not know where you live or what you do for work or where you went to college or any of any of those things, which is sort of the opposite of the experience of social media, right? So like, oh, yeah. if we spend all of our social engagement time in that superficial plane of social media, which has its own benefits, we don't have the opportunity to relate on this level. And so finding a place where you can be in the presence, the live presence of another adult human with whom you can share, who isn't going to offer necessarily advice, but just be a sounding board or a group of those people, I think is the first step. I love that. I And I don't want to cut you off, but I'm, uh, I had an experience where I was going through a divorce a few years ago. And I remember talking with my dear friend Mirabai Star, and she didn't have any advice. She just essentially was there and bared this loving witness to the pain and the experience that I was going through. And um, and I didn't need her to give me advice. Just that sharing of these, you know, intimate and and vulnerable emotions and thoughts and um, things of that nature that I was experiencing was so therapeutic. It didn't mean that I felt, you know, like a weight had been lifted off me because I was going through a divorce. It sucked, but uh, it was really, really beautiful and profound. And, And I think more so for the fact that I'm very introverted and I have a difficult time doing that. And many people I talk to can relate, you know, the introversion uh, is very very tough for for an addict especially like you said it's um, this this disease of isolation and so you compound that with a tendency uh, towards introversion as well and it's just it's not a good combination um, so anyways, no. I just wanted to share a little bit about that well and I think what you say too is something that all of us can use wherever we identify whatever's happening in our life when someone comes to us is just that simple question. Are you asking for my feedback mm. or are you just asking me to listen? That's such a great point. Because sometimes I do want your feedback and sometimes that's not actually what I'm asking for. And what I've found, it's been so, it's actually been a load off of my, I, I as a teacher, you know, here I am, I'm a teacher. I think everyone <laughs> wants to come for me for my feedback and my wisdom. Sure. And sometimes they they just want me to listen. 
And that's a, that's a relief for all of us, I think. Um, and so, you know, (laughs) or to say, you know, I'm available to listen, but I, I, I don't, I don't have feedback for you. I just, I'm just here to, to be another human. It, it is a very powerful, it makes an an inhospitable environment for addiction. Mm. Addiction can't thrive with an audience in that way. Yeah. Agreed. And thank you so much for also saying that you don't always have feedback to give. Uh, I think that's so important to be honest with others in that regard. You know, and, and I'll throw myself under the bus. I used to feel guilty or ashamed when um, someone would talk to me and I didn't know exactly what to say. And so I'd feel bad, like here's someone's coming to me and, and they want some feedback. So I would just make something up and, and with a very sincere intention behind it. But I, I should have, I would have been better off. Both of us would have been had I just listened and not said anything in certain cases. Not that it let, ever led anyone to any dire you know, results, but um, I think there's real strength in, in vulnerably admitting to someone else that in this moment or in this particular experience, I don't know exactly what to say. Um, right. Instead of just pulling whatever out of your ass, you know, you can to kind of save face if you're in that situation, which exactly. I did. <laughs> yeah. So. And I've done that too. And I think it's been such a relief for me to say these words. Yeah. I don't know that there are right words for me to say right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And, and I have found, I don't know if this is your experience, but when you, when you're able to do that, the person really nine out of 10 times, at least tends to really respect that and appreciate the honesty rather than some bullshit that you might hand them. Um, oh my gosh. Humans are the best bullshit detectors. Oh, I <laughs> seriously, they are finely honed instruments for sure. Yeah, we really are. We really are. And so, you know, it just makes us like stupid if we decide to throw some bullshit out at some of these basically yeah. Just yeah. says, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, yeah, well, the other point um, prior to that, um, unless you had anything else to, to say about the codependency, and if you do, um, or the signs or, or whatnot, please feel free. Um, or if not, I wanted to jump into codependency versus enabling the differences and similarities. So, um, did you have anything else on codependency specifically? No, and I'm I'm thinking about codependency and enabling, and I kind of think enabling is a subset of codependency, at least in the way that that it existed in my world. That codependency is bigger than just enabling behaviors. Mm. Um, enabling behaviors are, like I said, making excuses for someone else, right? Um, or uh, you know, earning enough money that they can pay for their drugs or something, something yeah. along those lines. Putting the roof over their head or, yes, yeah, like supporting their, whatever the particular habit would be, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Hearing yourself say, well, if they don't sleep on my couch, they'll sleep on the street. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. And if they sleep on your couch, they might be able to continue to use drugs even longer and get themselves into a more dire place physically than if they spend a night or two on the street and maybe not. And unfortunately it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's not our lesson to learn. Our lesson to learn is reflected based on our experience with that person, but we can't learn a lesson for someone else. Yeah. 
that that's so important and this is something that when people come to me with that if you know it's a parent or an uncle whomever um they're responsible for and you know they say look my my child my nephew whomever is um you know currently struggling with this and i'm really worried about their well-being but you know just like you said if they're not with me i don't know where they'll be or if i don't pay for this or that they might go into withdrawals and you know it's so tough i i hate giving that feedback of you know you need to let them hit their bottom uh, you know and, and everyone's bottom's different which thank goodness for that because not everyone needs to end up in the street or going through severe withdrawals um like i did uh and many others i'm sure listening have experienced or know someone who's experienced that doesn't have to be the case it can be an emotional bottom um that that does it for someone but yeah it when it comes to those situations really that I've found at least tends to be the best course of action is letting them experience their own consequences and whether that is not having a roof over their head for a night or a week or however long or spending that night or week in a jail cell because of certain behaviors and not bailing them out. Um, really, we we that struggle with this need to experience those consequences and, and not have someone constantly bailing us out um again my experience and many others i've talked to that's what's helped but um you know it's certainly uh i don't know i'm I'm grateful to hear you share a a similar viewpoint i think that is kind of the general go-to when it comes to enabling and and again not just with these drug or alcohol related issues but even with food or things of that nature um really letting people experience those um those even just emotional bottoms as unpleasant they are as they are and as difficult as it is for you as a loved one to see that but you're really what are you essentially you're doing is in a way loving them to death if you keep helping them go down that destructive road um so yeah thank you for your your thoughts on that um Right. And that reminded me too, that an emotional bottom is one way, you know, there is that, I think it it does a disservice to people to say, oh, bottom means no money, no family, no resources street. That's not always the case. Sometimes it is something different, but in some ways we, if you really want to think about how you as a family member or a friend or the person with the codependent tendencies can be of service mm-hmm. is just allowing that person to experience the consequences of their own behavior, which might mean the end of your relationship as you know it. Yeah. yeah. And there can be a relational bottom. You know, wouldn't it be nice for your person to experience the bottom of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I lost my best friend or my partner or something like that. And that's what got me sober versus getting all the way to the point where I was penniless and living on the street and or in jail, you know, we're depriving them of the opportunity for a relational bottom, which may not be as horrific right. as as the bottom that they would ultimately get to. Yeah. And I think that it's important to look at it that way too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and that was another thing that I didn't recognize that for many years either. Um I thought the bottom was that stereotypical strung out under a bridge or you know in the gutter with the bottle in your hand um no money in the bank like living in a tent and of course that is some people's bottoms but no it's it that doesn't need to be the case and in some cases to be honest i have found i've hit many emotional rock bottoms and i found those 
were way worse than the physical. And I don't, I don't want to get it twisted. I had experienced feelings of, of like I'm dying, you know, and and I literally have nearly died on a number of times from my use. Um, Mm -hmm. But those emotional bottoms are so awful, like just absolutely the worst. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So, um, yeah, a, a bottom is a bottom, period, regardless of, of what it looks like. So um, I'm glad we were able to discuss that a bit. And so, you know, we're talking about codependency enabling um, relationships. Let's, can you give for the audience, from your experience, what you would consider some signs of a healthy relationship versus signs of an unhealthy relationship? And, you know, and I think we've talked a bit about that already, but if we can give maybe some clear cut, here's yeah. a category of healthy, here's a category of unhealthy, because perhaps someone's listening and they're still not sure what camp they're in at this point, or maybe it's a little of both, but if maybe you can give a few in each, um, that would be rad. Yeah, great. I, I think there's this, uh, this, uh, relationship with the truth. I believe that someone who's in active addiction doesn't have a relationship with the truth. Mm. They're they're avoiding some aspect of their life and that brings in a lot of dishonesty. And therefore, that is difficult to have a functional relationship with someone in active addiction. And so just by virtue of one person being in active addiction, the other person has to be just as sick, quote unquote. I wish you could see my air quotes. Oh. <laughs> Everyone picture carries air quotes. Okay. <laughs> picture my air quotes. Uh, because we tend to partner with, we tend to relate with people that are in the same vein of functionality that we are. Mm. So it can be very tempting to point at someone who's using drugs or alcohol, who's engaging in a compulsive behavior with sex or money or food, and point at them and say, look how screwed up that person is. Mm. And instead of saying, but why am I continuing to engage in relationship with that person? It's because, I, I don't want to have to admit this, but but there's enough going on with me that I find that to be reasonable to continue on in that relationship. Mm. Um, there's no way for us to have an honest correspondence. And I think honesty or relationship with the truth is... The, the key sign of a healthy functional relationship. I'm also divorced. Um, I was married to my husband for seven years. We've been divorced for three and a half. Mm. And we have always had a very healthy, very functional relationship. Um, I say that some marriages fail without ending and ours ended without failing. Mm. That we... Um, we can still call one another and have an honest conversation. It could be really difficult. It could be about what the, who the other person is dating. Yeah. could be about a difficult family circumstance. But there's a, a willingness to have an honesty. So honesty and the truth. And then the constant need to address the definition of what that relationship is. A relationship can't be static. Right, yeah. We always have to, We everything is in flux. There's always movement because we're individual changing beings. And it is not a sign of a healthy relationship if we just agree both to stay exactly the same and never change. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. universe has a field day with that and it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. 
Should I this one? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, I love that you have that with your husband. How beautiful, you know, because in my experience, um, so when I was with my ex-wife, her, um, she wasn't married prior to me, but she did have a daughter with another person. And this was in Canada. So they were together, together, excuse me, like seven years. So it was almost essentially like a common law marriage between the two of them. But um, he, they weren't necessarily close, but he was still very, very much in the picture. He would have my stepdaughter every other week. We would do family dinners together. We would go trick-or-treating together, all three of us, um, or all four of us, myself, my wife, um, my stepdaughter, and, and her father. And it was so important for us to show her that healthy family dynamic. And very lucky, luckily for me, he was a wonderful guy. Like, we got along great, like, legit got along. It wasn't we were putting on an act. So I was very lucky because I know that's not often the case for many people. Um, however, once uh, we spart- we parted ways, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not that it was um, uh, an ugly breakup by any means. Uh, we were both very mature about it. Uh, we don't really maintain a friendship anymore. But, you know, what, what I'm, I was kind of smiling about when you were mentioning your husband that was that prior to my marriage, I was engaged and we didn't get married. Um, this is with my, my girlfriend prior to my ex-wife. So I was engaged and we ended up breaking up and ended up still remaining very close friends and or well actually we didn't talk for a while but then we circled back around and became like best friends and so I was sitting there back in Connecticut where I reside now this was a couple years ago filling out my divorce paperwork and my ex-fiance slash best friend was sitting there with me at this coffee shop helping me fill out my divorce paperwork you know and she's since married and at the time I had just one child she now has two but, you know, I thought that was really cool that she could be there for me in that way and that um, and that it is possible to have that healthy dynamic with another individual and to have that support. It's, it's great because really, who knows you better? You know, who knows you better than your ex-husband or mm-hmm. my ex-fiance? So to have that healthy dynamic, how cool. I think that's really wonderful that you're able to do that. Yeah, we joke about it now. I, I have a, <laughs> a hashtag that I use, is this codependent? Um, but I, I was, we were chatting and he was working on his online dating profile (laughs) and I said, Oh, send me, send me what you wrote. And he sent it to me. And I, I just quickly riffed back something. I was like, maybe you should do something like this. And he was like, Oh my God, can I use that? Hmm. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, I guess so. Like, who knows you better, who better, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And say, you know, it not, but not that he, what he had written was incorrect. It was just stuffy. And, um, you know, I was like, this is how I see you. This is who I see. And he was like, oh my God, you're so right. That's who I am. And of course, then he meets this amazing woman and blah, 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 you know, yeah. um, it worked out. But I think if I, if I had stayed in these rigid bounds, this black and white thinking of we're either married or you're dead to me. Right, right. What I would have deprived myself of. Yeah. So as long as, you know, I think there are periods of commitment and periods of evaluation. For sure. And you get into a period of evaluation and you decide, you know what, let's make a go of it. And then you enter a period of commitment. And then... At some point, maybe somebody says, this isn't working for me anymore. We need to go back into evaluation and see what needs to change. And then let's commit to that. 
and you kind of have this this experience if you're if you're constantly in evaluation it doesn't work if you're constantly in commitment I don't know that that works either um, I think that there is some some aspect of going back and forth between those two ideas um, that can foster healthy relationship and for me healthy relationship is something that maybe doesn't always feel good it could feel sad sure. it could feel difficult but it it doesn't feel like the thing that drives you towards addiction, towards that acting out, you know, like that is a sign that something has gone very wrong. I can see, and I can see that someone is moving on with their life or they're, they're, they're getting something that I would have wanted. And I can be like, Oh, I have a little melancholy. I have a little jealousy. I have some frustration about that, but, but I also am happy for that person. And being able to cultivate those kinds of feeling states and own all of those feeling states yes. is is really important because when we have feeling states that we're not owning, that's when we end up in trouble. We end I, up hiding. We go into secret, isolation, addiction. Yes. I couldn't have said it any better. I mean, you literally just took the words out of my mouth and, and such an important point to make because for many people that probably seems counterintuitive you know like I'm feeling melancholy or sad or whatever the unpleasant emotion and feeling might be yet it is completely healthy because you're not uh, suppressing it you're not shoving it down because ultimately anything you suppress and you don't look at it of course will come back up sooner or later and usually a lot stronger and just with a bigger energy around it than if you dealt with it in the moment or maybe not in the exact moment but you came back to it that evening or you know just within a, a timely fashion um that's that's so huge and and i've learned the very very hard way that that is absolutely the truth um at least in my experience because that has certainly led me back to relapsing in my path of uh, or my journey of sobriety for sure yeah. suppressing that stuff not walking through it but tucking it away neatly, you know, and, and never going back to it. And then it just absolutely leads to that isolation, leads to that guilt, that shame, that, you know, all those unpleasant things, because I know it's there somewhere down there, and I know I should look at it, but I'm not. And hence the spiral and downward spiral, you know, begins again. So. Right. Well, and I wanted to mention something you just yeah. talked about relapse. And I think that it's an important idea when we talk about codependency, because you know, there are certain addictions where it's very clear, did you use heroin today or not? Right. Yep. That is a very clear addiction. And then there are other addictions they're sometimes called process addictions with people, with food, with money, with sex that are a little more nebulous. Did you eat food today? Yes. Did you eat food in a compulsive way today? I don't know. Right. Codependency and like, what is a relapse with codependency? That is the conversation that I have been having because for me, recovery from codependency has been one millimeter at a time. Yeah. It's a slow, steady recognition of a behavior and then an acknowledgement and then a sharing and then maybe noticing it a little sooner the next time. So I use the Pringles analogy where, you know, you're familiar with Pringles. Of course, yeah. Right? <laughs> and so for me, mindfulness is getting elbow deep in a can of Pringles and realizing that you have the choice to finish the last three chips. <laughs> That's right. 
such a good point. And then the next time, maybe getting halfway through the can, and the next time when you're reaching for the can, and the next time when you're at the grocery store, and the next time, you know, and this is the teaching of yoga, these samskaras, these, oh, I'm on the path again, I'm doing that thing again, and learning how to stop just one step sooner than you did the previous time. So I think in some respects, relapse with codependency is the same thing, yeah. where you realize there's Pringles in your cart, you realize there's Pringles in your house, you realize that you're standing in the kitchen eating a can of Pringles, right? So realizing that, oh, I just had a codependent thought and then I acted on that and then I took it to the next step and then I called someone who was going to make it worse, not better. Mm. And all of those those little steps, it's, I mean, it's possible to have a codependent blackout, which, you know, for me is picking up and flying across the country to fix the problem nobody asked you to fix. <laughs> right. Well, but these yeah. little micro movements. Yeah. I love that analogy. I think that's great. And, you know, that was big for me in my own process was uh, several years ago. I recognized that, sure, I might be um, abstaining from ingesting alcohol and, and drugs, but I would catch myself completely obsessively thinking and compulsively acting out with food same mm. exact way I would with alcohol for example where I would drink and drink and drink until I was blackout drink to a you know till I was obliterated I would go back to the kitchen if I was home for the day um, not every day but often um, it would last a day two days but I would just eat 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 not hungry but still consume and consume unhealthy food and it was the complete same action as if I were ingesting drugs or alcohol, which was so important for me in my process to recognize that the drugs and alcohol, they're just a symptom. You know, they're just part of it. The actual illness is that disorder, the obsessive compulsive disorder that I deal with, which manifests in countless ways in my life. So I've often felt weird talking about clean time because sure, maybe I've had like lengths of multiple years away from drugs and alcohol, but I would still catch myself acting out with food or in relationships or, you know, a myriad uh, other ways in my life. So am I really clean or have I relapsed in other regards? Because to me, yes, I will most likely experience harsher negative consequences when it comes to drinking to blackout because God knows what, what I'll do in that state. Whereas I might be in a more semi-rational mindset when I'm just ingesting unhealthy food. But still, it's it's based on that obsessive compulsive thinking and acting. So I, I'm, I'm grateful that I had that realization, certainly later than a lot of people on their recovery paths, but better late than never as far as I'm concerned. So um, it helps me today to realize, you know what, because food is something I struggle with and relationships too, but food is, is a bit easier for me to gauge in, in this regard. And so just like I have to take it one day at a time with alcohol and drugs, I do the same with eating, you know, it's like, or one meal at a time, like, I'm not going to eat healthy the rest of my life, but today I'm going to choose to eat healthy, or for lunch, I'm going to choose to eat healthy, and, and I found that that really does help quite a bit, and, and I, I'm guessing the same could be said for relationships, though I've never really looked at it or used it specifically in that context. Well, I think you're right, food ends up being kind of the sentinel addiction, right? Do you know what a sentinel species is? Sentinel. Uh, no, could you could you elaborate on that? So a sentinel species is 
the one that lets us know that change is coming. So they're the most sensitive to the change. Gotcha. Right. So like amphibians are sensitive to global warming because mm. they they're much more sensitive. They can't live at a certain pH or they can't live at a certain temperature. I don't know the exact details. Sure, sure. But um, I think food is something we have to engage with on a daily basis. That we have like everyone has a relationship with food, right. and. Everyone has relationships with people, and it's easier to sit down and say, I made an interesting, different choice with my food today. More so, it's easier to see. It's more tangible. It's a grosser right, uh, experience, um, more visible experience than how did I engage with technology or people or money today. Sometimes money has this this way of being very visible for us. Right. But I think that I think that it is a nice way to look at that. And and say, you know, when I'm in a healthy mind, body, spirit state, I, I act in certain ways and I can watch, I can let my food behavior be a barometer for other behaviors in my life. I find this to be true as well in my experience with, with um, codependency, with relationships, mm-hmm. um, is that I have the same thing. Like I, I will choose not to eat. I'll just drink coffee all day. Ah. Um, I don't, and I, I, I'm also not aware of being hungry and, uh, I'll just not feed myself for, you know, breakfast, skip breakfast, skip lunch. So now I need to be aware, like, Oh, how interesting. I, I chose to skip breakfast today. Is that how I want the rest of my day to go? Or should I put something in my mouth right now? Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's such a good point. Wow. So, well, thank you for that, Carrie. This has been such a great conversation. We still have a few minutes. So before we wrap up, um, and I'm absolutely going to have to have you back on the show because I feel like we've just begun to scratch the surface of some amazing things um, we could continue talking about. But I definitely wanted to quickly check in about the book you're writing, uh, Not About Me, a memoir. Uh, Do you have a release date and and um are you at a place where you're able to talk a little bit about that i wish i could talk about the release date i can talk a little bit about the substance of the book or sure. the process of the book yeah if you yeah that would be awesome it sounds like i said in reading your bio i love that title not about me a memoir awesome yeah so if, if you could share whatever you're able to and at liberty to share about it, that'd be great yeah so the the book itself um, I, I had made a decision. I was not going to write a book about men. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a book about men. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I did was I, I um, this relationship with the sex addict was not the first relationship that I'd had with an active addict. I had been in relationship with an active alcoholic before my marriage. And um, while I was married, I learned that that alcoholic had died with alcoholism. Mm. Uh, he had actually frozen to death. Oh, wow. Um, and he was buried just a few miles from my house, which is unusual because he died more than a thousand miles away. And so it um, really hit me in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I took it personally and I thought it was very much, you know, because I left, mm. the, the worst case scenario happened. And that's not the truth. I know that intellectually. Um, But I wanted to understand what got me into and out of, what were the circumstances that got me into this relationship that was so toxic for me? 
And then the billion dollar question, why did I stay? And I had to unpack this through writing this book. And so this book reflects back on the different romantic relationships that I've had in my life. And um, it, it ends up being having some gravity, obviously. Spoiler, he dies. Um, <laughs> but also some, some wit and some levity. For whatever reason, I say some funny stuff. And that is my experience of life is that it is both heavy and has gravity and it has levity as well. And so it ended up being this really bizarre hodgepodge of all of those things, which big spoiler does not end with me finding a man. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it does not have the Disney conclusion that I, that I have. My dad has always said, if you can't find the book you want to read, then you have to write it. And I ended yes, up writing yes. it for myself because every book that I found, every Disney story was you go through this adversity all this stuff happens and then you meet a man and that's the end mm -hmm. um and i was tired of reading that version of the story and i thought you know what i'd like to be able to answer these questions for myself and unpack the lessons of this for myself and yes i would ultimately like to find a man to be in partnership with but that's not the goal and that's not the end of the story yeah Wow. Well, you have certainly piqued my interest. I am. I, I mean, I, of course, hope and wish that for you as well. But I I love and, and this is not real life, but I love watching movies where it's not a happy ending. You know, it's it's just um, it it's not what you're typically ingrained to expect. And I love that. So not saying you don't have a happy ending, but <laughs> I like the endings where they're, you know, they're not what you like the Disney endings, you know, cause it's done, done, done. And that's why I tried to be very uh, transparent in everything I do. Cause granted life is good today, but it is, there have been plenty of days and plenty of experiences where it's awful. And I have not had Disney endings in, in much of my life. And uh, I think it's super important to be very, honest about that so you know bravo to you for doing that and for for writing this book and uh, I'm please keep me posted on it I'm super excited and and yeah. for the audience I'm sure you'll be posting about it on your website which again is carriequinn.com um, anyone listening can check that out learn more about Carrie uh, and her offerings and all that said Carrie like I said a few minutes ago you know, we, we talk, talked about a lot of different things, but still really barely scratched the surface of what we could have discussed. So I, when time permits, which it does now, I'd like to give the last couple of minutes to my guest in the event there's anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to share with the audience or any topics we didn't cover. Um, or if you feel like we're good to go, then we're good to go. But I would love to extend that opportunity to you now. I appreciate it. I sure. think... Um, I think the one offering that I'd like to make uh, relates a little bit back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, and that's how to be a supportive person in the world. Um, you know, when we're not encouraged to share, we don't have many opportunities to share the darker sides of our lives, which are just as valid as the lighter sides. 100%. You know, we have plenty of forums in which we're invited to share the highlight reel. Um, and we're, we're invited to keep the dark side private. And that's how, you know, we've discussed, we know that's where addiction and uh, unhealthful behaviors lurk and 
and are nourished in, in that isolation. So I would love to encourage everyone that's listening that if someone does come to you with something, a willingness to share grief, sadness, the darkness, not that you take that on, not that you fix it. It's actually not possible in my opinion to fix another person. Mm. Um, but that you have something to say. And for me, it's helpful to have a canned response in my own <laughs> lexicon. So for me, that is, um, that must be hard. Thank you for sharing. I'm glad you're here. Like those three things can always be true for me. If someone comes to me and says, I just experienced a loss, I can say, that must be hard. I'm glad you told me. I'm glad you're here. I can say those kinds of things. I don't have to think about what else to say because the reality is that there are many circumstances in life for which there are no appropriate words. Absolutely. And so having something to say, if you're compelled to say something, and then to just stop and be there and say, I can be here, or how can I help resource you? If you're compelled to fix other people, instead, allow yourself to be the bridge, the connection between the help they need instead of offering it, right? So this is the lesson of the lifeguard. <laughs> you don't just jump in, you throw a lifesaver. Yeah. You call for help. You do all of these other things. And um, and I think that's that's the additional takeaway that I would have is that we that we step up, that we be that safe place for someone to have a dark moment and that we don't have the responsibility to take it on or to fix it, but just that we can be present and hold space for that and uh, resource them if and when possible wow you know gary you are all sorts of awesome <laughs> this is uh this has been a real treat having this conversation with you i i really really deeply appreciate your candor your vulnerability um your transparency thank you and thank you for for the offerings you are you are giving in this world i cannot encourage listeners enough to please check out Carrie's website, CarrieQuinn.com. Again, if you are checking this out on the Be Here Now Network, just simply scroll down and we will have it linked right there. Um, aside from that, again, Carrie, thank you very much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.